0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, thanks very much for coming. That was uh, an amazing film. Um, I'd seen it uh, on a computer screen (laughs) before the sound was mixed in, and it's a completely different experience. I mean, at times you feel now as if uh, you're looking through the the mask, and you're in the water with those fish, and it's just incredibly, incredibly intense. I almost don't know where to start. I thought maybe I'd actually start by mentioning how we met. That was about three and a half years ago, wasn't it? Yep. And uh, you, you want to tell the story, or should I? Oh, uh, you, can, you can I'll tell the story? <laughs> yeah. So Mark decided, for some reason, to take Blue Horizons, and uh, came into my office, and I thought I was going to interview him, and he interviewed me. And we talked about it, and I told him what the, what the program was about, and he looked at me and he said, I just want to know, is it going to be intense? Is it going to be intense? And I went, um, and I thought, well, this is probably going to end this. So I said, yeah, it's going to be really intense. It's going to be immersive. He goes, well, that's good, because otherwise I wouldn't take it. <laughs> so here we are. Yep, it's amazing. Fantastic job. Um, let's just start with, um, how, did, how did you meet Rick?
1: So uh, Rick was actually giving a presentation in Santa Barbara, and um, my mom emailed me about it. She let me know. Your mom? Yeah, my mom was here. And, um, and so I went to it, and um, afterwards there was a, a little Q&A, and then um, some people I know were having a, a kind of more intimate uh, Q&A over lunch, and, and I got to tag along and um, ask him some questions. And some of the questions for the audience was, were... Uh, how do I get involved in something like this? And he said, well, find someone who's doing it and keep bugging them. So um, I uh, asked him at the end of the lunch if it would be all right if I could start bugging him, and, and he said it would. Um, so I bugged him for a while, and then uh, got some, uh, some small jobs for them. I got to work on their last film, doing some research um, for the script, because um, that film was on National Geographic Channel, and they require that anything that's in the script has... Uh, you know, a scientific basis. for Is that Hot them. Tuna? Just to Yeah, that was Hot Tuna, which showed three years ago, 2012, um, almost to the day three years ago. Um, yeah, so that was, that was the beginning of it, um, meaning him working for them. Uh, they actually, at that time, when I started to bug him, uh, he didn't respond at first, and it was actually because he was on uh, the 40-day film shoot. They were out for 40 days trying to get kind of the grand sequence for that film, and for the first 39 days, nothing happened. And then it all kind of went off, and, and uh, they got some great stuff. Um, but I didn't know if you would respond or not. But anyway, that's, that's the story. And, uh, yeah, they've been great to me ever since.
0: And you've worked with them on what, what kinds of films since?
1: Um, so this film is really, really since then, we've kind of been working on it in, in all the different stages. Um, I've also got to go shooting for uh, Disney Nature Bears with them. Uh, for an upcoming series on the Atlantic Ocean, a BBC series. It'll be a three-part series coming out in the next year or so. Um, so and some uh, we do some kind of mini films for Hobie Kayak Company. Um, so there's been some great fun traveling with them and uh, been learning a lot, that's for sure. Where would you shoot on Disney Nature Bears? So we were mostly focused on the underwater salmon part of it because Rick's specialty is really underwater. And the, the salmon make an incredible migration back up into the the rivers that they were born in, and uh, the most amazing thing uh, filming for that film was I didn't realize that there'd be such a distinct moment where the salmon pass from saltwater to freshwater, but underwater you could, you could see this wall where on one side it was blurry saltwater, there are these saltwater fish, there's halibut, seaweed, all of this, and they go through this just curtain, and they enter the freshwater with all the freshwater species, and they've made it, and it was amazing to me, it was such a moment. Um, so
0: you're just filming the salmon, no bears? Bears, um, no salmon?
1: We were pretty much, yeah, focused just on the salmon for that. Yeah.
0: Did you ever turn around and there was um, something? During cliche? other <laughs> trips to Alaska,
1: I'd been there uh, several other times um, for different, different projects and some research and, as well. Um, so got pretty close. But if the, salmon are feed, if the salmon are there and the bears are able to feed on the salmon, the bears are pretty cool with you being there. They don't really want to fight. So they're just, I mean, it's a sushi bar for them, so they'll just come they come this close and they don't really want to hassle you but if if you're in Yellowstone it's big trouble
0: <laughs> got it yeah so Rick's in Austria
1: now, is that right? Rick and Katya are both in Austria. They're um, there for a few reasons. This film, this was the world premiere, and after this, it starts showing on television in Europe, and they have a number of film festivals they're going to represent it for as well, and uh, start talking about the next projects that they're, they're cooking up in their minds, um, as well as shoot another little Hobie piece, Hobie kayak piece.
0: So let's talk about this film for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, Since you've been with them for years, where did this idea come from? How did it get going and how did it evolve to the point where you you were in production?
1: So I think this is a film that Rick's really wanted to make for years. Um, In Rick's early days as a marine biologist, he was down at Westinghouse working uh, there and for Scripps in San Diego doing research, and uh, he was on a little team where they would take submersibles down thousands of feet. It just, uh, I believe it was two-man operations. Um, and so I think that really kind of opened his eyes to the vertical migration. Um, and we really haven't known about the vertical migration for that long, so that was nearer to, to the start of it. And, uh, but since then, there's really not been a feasible way to film it because it wasn't until the last couple of years that cameras are light-sensitive enough to even film out there. Um, Talking about a challenging film project, it's underwater, it's out in the open ocean, and it's at night. So it's pretty challenging, and the technology just kind of finally caught up with us.
0: Well, there's a difference. I mean, it's been filmed in some way from submersibles, Mm -hmm. um, such as the one we saw in the film. But for for somebody to go out there essentially alone, well, obviously not completely alone... You were there, other people were there filming him, but two or three people in the water total in the middle of it is a completely unique new experience. Right. Um, it seems, I guess it seems strange that nobody's done that before. I mean, I, I understand the technology, but it's such a powerful um, change, mm-hmm. and it's such a powerful force. I would have thought that people would have at least tried to. Do you know of any
1: cases where people have tried to do it? Or I don't know it? of any cases where people have tried to do it. It's also challenging uh, from the perspective of if you set out to film um, migration in the Serengeti, you get a helicopter shot, you see the whole migration, and you kind of get it right away. And it was a big challenge in this film. How do you show and convey how grand this migration is? You can't do a wide shot. You can't really show all the creatures coming up. So just even from a filmmaking perspective, there's an inherent challenge uh, to get it to come to live on screen.
0: And I know that the, the, uh, the process of trying to figure out what the story was going to be took a long time. How did you get involved in the
1: film? Um, actually, I, uh, my fourth year here at UC Santa Barbara, my winter quarter, I took an extra heavy, <coughs> extra heavy course load so that I would be done in time um, about two weeks into the spring quarter if I... Had to have stayed, I would have missed the trip, but there was a, one of the first trips to film in Hawaii. So I took a heavy course load in winter and got to graduate early so that I could start to be a, a part of it. But um, I, I was already doing some small projects for them and got to work on the last film one bit. And uh, I was obviously eager to join along, and I had done Blue Horizons the summer before, which um, at the start of that summer I went to Rick and Katya and I said... You know, I, I really want to progress a lot this summer. I want to learn a lot. What's you know, the best thing I can do? I can go out filming by myself and, and try to teach myself, put something together, or there's this course, Blue Horizons, um, and I explain what it does. It takes us in nine weeks through the whole filmmaking process, and they said, definitely do that. So at the end of that, I think they were impressed with the final product, and, um, and I just learned so much from the course that um, I was much more of an asset to then actually go on a filming trip and start working with them more intensely.
0: I should point out that there are, where are you guys, right there? Raise your hands, Blue Horizon students behind you right there for this summer. They're all right there. Um, and hopefully you'll have that experience and be out filming in the middle of the ocean someplace in three years, right? Um, so how did you, I mean, your roles had to evolve. I mean, because that was two and a half years ago? What two years ago?
1: Hmm? What had to evolve? Your roles on the film had to
0: evolve. I know you didn't start as the editor of the film. Right, Talk about how that happened and and how you sort of took more and more a central role in the process. Sure.
1: Yeah, there's just so much to learn on projects like this, and especially um, with... I mean, it was a very small team that put this together, with uh, Rick and Kati, obviously being the the two key people. And... um, yeah, so the first trip I had mostly assistant type duties, uh, and a lot of it's even prepping dive gear or whatever. It was it was obviously helpful that I was a diver, but just uh, having extra hands on you know boat excursions is always very helpful. So um, at the, right at the beginning, those were more my responsibilities, and they would give me a camera now and then, and. Uh, I don't know if they thought <clears throat> I would get anything or if they would just make me feel good, but they'd give me a camera. <laughs> Went on more trips with them. Uh, yep, my role started to progress. And then for the editing part, we were actually in Alaska filming for Bears as well as a Hobie kayak piece. And we had shot um, a couple little sequences, and then we hit rain for, I don't know, 10 days. And so at first, there were kind of things to do to keep busy, but then there weren't. And so I was just in my room in Alaska, and I had an editing program on my laptop, so I figured I would start editing sequences together of what we had put together, so then I got to be, they liked um, what I was working on, so I got to edit that little piece, and it was just a five-minute film or so, and then a few more after that, and uh, by the time it came to put this one together, they had enough trust in me, and we... Forward.
0: Well, it's an amazing thing to be able to sort of step from no credits to a credit on a film like this, and to do the kind of job you did. I mean, it seems to me that Rick has done some huge projects: yeah. Planet Earth, Blue Ocean, mm-hmm. Blue Planet, Blue Planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but my sense is that he really loves the kind of tiny little seat of the pants project like this. Do yeah. you, have, you were with him on on the Disney movie. Do you have that sense as well?
1: Absolutely. Um, before cameraman, Rick is at heart a marine biologist. I, that's how I, I view him. He, uh, and so to, to be able to really um, you know, go after and try to film something that gets him fired up, uh, I think, makes a big difference. And for him to be able to really call the shots and um, pick a project like this. Uh, he's done a number of whale specials, too, that were also kind of a uh, smaller team um, type thing. But he's a brilliant marine biologist, and he uh, gets excited about these types of projects, so um, yeah, what's it like diving with him? Um, he's just just out on the water at all it's, it's really just amazing being with him like filming whales, you'll see one go down, and he'll say, "All right, wait about four minutes and it's going to pop up over there and it's just this kind of otherworldly sense that uh, to me I, I mean there, there's no like good explanation for how well he can read the ocean or you know if most people they go out on a boat they go out way out in the open ocean they look around it's blue in every direction and he has this sense of let's go that way i got this good feeling um so just over the years he's just developed this kind of sense of the natural world um and then mm-hmm. at, that extends underwater as well when we're underwater it's, often it's over there, over there. And I can't see anything. I mean, you, you know, only have limited visibility, but somehow he knows uh, where to go and something's happening. So it's... Uh, um, sometimes I struggle keeping up with him. He's pretty intense under, underwater sometimes.
0: Well, you can see that. Yeah. I mean, you get that sense. When he's diving down without scuba gear and he's and at the point where most people would be thinking, I'm going up, he's still going down. Right. Um, Were you in scuba? Were you using scuba gear most of the time, or were you diving also with a snorkel? I mean,
1: Um, it it really depends. A lot of the film. How long can he hold his breath, by the way? (laughs) No, I I wanted to know this. (laughs) See, it's it's interesting because, um, well, first of all, most of the time I would say we were not using scuba gear because the bubbles will often scare critters away. So if we don't need scuba gear, it's better to to go without it. There are ways around that. There are rebreather systems that trap your bubbles, but. It gets really expensive and complicated, and there's safety hazards, and you need a larger crew. And so it's really easier to just kind of dive down if you can. Um, having said that, sometimes there are things that happen deeper, you need to stay down, or sometimes you just want to uh, try it both ways, like, like under the boat. Sometimes we were freediving, and sometimes we were scuba diving, and just see what comes, comes by. Um, but most of the life, if you are just freediving, most of the life's really in the top. 15 to 30 feet or so. And so, I mean, competition freedivers, they can get hundreds of feet down. It's really crazy. But um, for us, there's not nearly that need. More it's, I want to get down 20 feet, and how long can I stay there? Um, which is a big challenge when you can't, like competition freedivers, you can breathe up, you can relax, you can dive down, you come back up. But if you're already out of breath, you're kicking along, and you see a sailfish going by down there, you got to you know, go right away. And you're pushing a heavy camera. So it's very different, it's um, just a, a different mentality when you're diving the film or if you're just diving the dive.
0: It's amazing to me that under those conditions of free diving that you're, that you're able to hold the shots as long as you do and to sort of maintain stability for as long as you do under there. really is surprising.
1: Yeah, probably, probably a fair amount of clips right at the end then there'd be a camera jerk and that's... <laughs> as you <laughs> yeah, as scoot, scoot to, to the, the top.
0: Go. So talk to me a little bit about the story of the film um, because uh, this is obviously, I, I, as I watch the film, I mean, it really has a very strong narrative sense. It has a strong beginning, middle, and end. There, uh, Rick faces challenges along the way. We don't know whether he's going to succeed or not. It really kind of builds your rooting interest in him and his quest. How did that come about?
1: Yeah, so it's it was... Difficult to kind of come up and form the story. We went on a uh, half dozen film trips maybe for this film and every time you go you have no idea what you're going to get. And if you're, I mean we took one trip to Panama and we were there for a week and, and during that trip we would shoot what we could and we'd come back with whatever we shot and that's all there was to it. So it's very difficult in such an unpredictable environment to kind of form a story ahead of time. And the story that we ended up cutting to was um, conveniently kind of how things unfolded given that we made it into a composite. So it wasn't so many days and so many weeks filming. We made it into a kind of few day thing, but um, it, it I think was kind of a learning opportunity too as we went along filming, um, trying to find the, the cooler critters and where they might come out. So um, in the end, the story was more constructed in the edit room, but it, it, had its base in reality. Yeah.
0: So, did the final, or the fi- one of the final dives into the the great the migration was that at the end? Was there the, a sense that you weren't going to get it? That at was point?
1: the last dive.
0: That was the last. It was the last dive. On and so, chip, yeah. all of the things you had learned up to that point actually delivered on that evening.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really good news. Yeah. Yeah. We- <laughs> Um, and we knew it would be the last dive, too. I mean, we were flying back to California the next day. It was, really? It was the last trip. And so we got back up, and uh, I didn't want to say anything at first, but uh, Katya, who's the producer, she's there on the boat. And did, What'd you get? What'd you get? What'd you get? And Rick's just like...
0: We got it. <laughs> What does it feel like diving in the open water at night? I mean, Rick describes it a little bit in the film. Had, had it been something you'd done before a lot? Or... No, not at all. So uh,
1: first time in, how was that? Well, all right. luckily, when you're on a project such as this, you're so stressed about getting the shot and seeing the creatures that there's really no time to think about danger or, I don't know. I mean, there's just, you're focused. And so, having said that, it is disorienting um, getting under there. I mean, you don't really have much of a sense of depth when you just, any direction you look, it's black. I mean, if you're diving in the day, especially if you can see bottom, just even the color of the water tells you about what depth you are. But at night in the open ocean, it's, you know, for 6,000 feet below you, it's just blackness. Um, you just, it's disorienting.
0: Was there anything, given that you were there and your field, uh, field of vision was extremely narrow, was there anything you didn't want to run into?
1: Yeah. So it's a good point about the field of vision. I mean, for those of you who have worn uh, scuba masks, you, you don't really have peripherals at all. Um, we... We hoped to see large sharks and, and stuff that um, maybe most people would would at first assume we wouldn't want to see. What we didn't, well, we had very mixed emotions. Overall, we did want to see it, but there's this uh, fish. It's called a cookie cutter shark. They only get about 22 inches long, so they're fairly small. But they live in the deep ocean. They come up at night and they take a coring out of marine mammals or large fish, any really medium to large animal in the open ocean. Um, it's, they're just, they come up, they take coring, and they go right back down. And they're able to catch dolphins and mahi and very fast fish. And so, on one hand, they've never been filmed in their natural environment, and it would have been really awesome to, to get a shot of them. On the other hand, in the event that we saw them, it would probably be because we just had a coring (laughs) taken out of one of us. So, that was kind of, the ongoing joke was about the cookie cutter sharks, you know. Yeah.
0: And what was, personally, the most surprising thing that you saw or
1: filmed? Uh, to me, the most surprising, kind of the coolest moment, it was on that, that first trip uh, to Hawaii. Um, was seeing I was on the boat at the time, but the juvenile spearfish came through the light, and I was looking down at it, and it was just beautiful. It was colorful, and I just hadn't really ever thought of what a juvenile spearfish would look like. and. and I didn't really have it in my mind that they would be kind of a miniature of the adult. And it was um, it was really one of the first creatures that I've seen since I was, like, a little kid walking through the woods that I I didn't know what it was, and it was just so new to me. Um, you know, since then, I if you've been to a zoo or you've seen Planet Earth or whatever, most animals are fairly familiar, um, especially for someone like me who really likes animals. Um, so seeing that was just kind of, I just had that sense of awe again of, like, wow, this is out there. Um, but I was also kind of, you know, expecting new creatures at the same time. So something that I didn't expect and, and was less, uh, less of a, a good moment, uh, when we were in Panama going out, there were these huge garbage lines, trash lines of just floating debris. Uh, I mean, they'd be so dense that under them was just complete shadows, like just darkness under there. Um, just for miles long, and from from Minnie Mouse dolls to uh, syringes and pill cap bottles, soccer balls. It was the World Cup at the time, so there were soccer balls and beach chairs and everything. Um, So that was, uh, I mean... How big were they? Miles long. Really? These ones tended to be kind of more narrow, maybe 50 yards wide, but just, I mean... Endless. Yeah. Wow, that's quite sad. Yeah. Did you film those? We did. But, uh, you
0: archived it. Archived it. Well, actually, film?
1: we have a, we've been putting together a kind of behind the scenes uh, for this film, and it, it's in there.
0: So, as I understand it, um, actually, I know this to be true. Uh, you um, you did the aerial shots. Yeah. Um, and the way you did them, why don't you tell everybody how
1: that happened? Yeah. So Matt uh, will bring over the drone. This is uh, uh,
0: by the way. Remember when you were in kindergarten for show and tell? <laughs> so we're going to do. Did you ever do show and did you ever man. do show and can tell? It? Yeah, I don't think okay. it maybe can you put it there? Sure. Sure, thanks. Yeah. Did you ever do show and tell in school?
1: Yeah, so it was a good story. In kindergarten, they shut down my show and tell, as my mom's told me, because I would bring live animals in. And the teacher eventually didn't appreciate it, so halfway through the year there was no more. So, so this, this is my first show and tell since then, which is very exciting, a big moment for me.
0: You know what? All those years and all those years of deprivation and here you are again. Yeah. So um, why don't you tell us what, you built this, right?
1: Yeah. So I got very excited at uh, kind of the prospect of of drone filming. Um, I know a lot of guys are into kind of building remote controlled things and that's a cool hobby of theirs. For me it was more of a a tool, um, how amazing I could put a camera on a machine and tell it to go film somewhere and uh, you know, the amazing things that I could film without having to be there. So um, I, it took me about a year to kind of start flying small drones, break them, put them back together, figure out how to build bigger ones, and um, eventually come up with uh, this big guy, which the aerials in the film, that's, um, this is what took those, and uh, when came on the BBC trip, too, for, to film Humpbacks in the Atlantic, and so it's been around, uh, it's been around for a while now. Um, it's funny, it's, a lot of people might assume, well, it is true, flying one of these, which I have thousands of dollars in, and so much time, flying them from a boat where if they go down, they're gone forever, it's pretty stressful. Uh, I certainly want to get the thing back. On the other hand, I'd much rather lose it out at sea than to be flying and possibly start a fire or be flying around i I've done more, um, commercial gigs too, and so actually- You flew this in here once, didn't you? Or Not its this younger one, brother, but another. It's another, little brother. Yeah, okay. it's little brother. It's another one. Yeah, yeah. So actually, in a way, flying in the open ocean was less stressful because worst case, I lose the machine, but no one gets hurt.
0: Well, it's, uh, those are some extraordinary shots, and the stability of the shots is actually what amazed me. Is I mean, is that completely gimbaled down there? Can you yeah, control that? Yeah. Or so,
1: and that's why you just sort I, of go through it. A yeah, little bit? I'll, I'll pick it up. So, and that's why too. I decided I had to build the drones because the ones that, um, that I could buy and still the ones that I could buy just weren't stable enough. They just didn't give as good performance. Um, and I knew if I built myself, at least I, I would be the only person I could blame if I had vibrations in the shot. So um, that's how I went about it. So down here is what's called the gimbal. And the camera sits right here. And as the drone moves around, it's got these little sensors in it that can tell the drone's moving, and the camera stays perfectly still. So the drone's zooming through the air, doing its thing, and the camera's staying still. And so for a big drone like this, it's a two-man operation. There's one pilot, and then there's a cameraman. Um, For this film, most of the time, I took the camera role on this, which is even more nerve-wracking having a different pilot fly it from the boat. (laughs) But uh, I kind of knew the shots that we needed, so it made sense for me to be the cameraman at the time. Um so yeah, it's got uh eighteen inch carbon fiber props on it, so in the event that uh it hits someone it wouldn't wouldn't be a good thing, so we had to be pretty careful on the boat. Um and it's got these big batteries, they're the size of bricks, they're each about four and a half pounds. So it's a pretty serious machine, it's pretty loud and powerful when it takes off. This should be able to carry about fifty pounds of payload. Um but we needed to kind of uh, overkill to make sure that even in windy conditions and flying from a boat, we would get just those nice, uh, smooth movements. And hopefully, you couldn't tell that it was a drone shot. That was kind of the, uh, the goal. Well, um, no, it's, it, it's,
0: it's beautiful stuff. It really is. Well, Mark, thanks. Thanks for Thank coming. You. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for doing the film. It's an amazing piece of work. And um, you should be really proud of it. Thank, Thank you. you.